Welcome to episode 16 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, our companion podcast to our Read the Whole Bible chronologically in a year plan at Calvary. This episode, Clayton and I talk a little bit about next week's readings in 1 Samuel and the Psalms and answer any questions that we have received. So let's get to it. Uh, So something I was thinking about from last week is, and we talked a little bit about it, but just the juxtaposition between Ruth and Judges, <laughs> that Judges is violent and terrible and nightmarish, and Ruth is like quiet and calm and good. Yeah. <laughs> and both are, I mean, like Ruth is happening kind of during the span of the Judges before Samuel, and you know. So it's just interesting to think about the two perspectives on the same period of history and just how different they both are. You know, and not to say that one is truer than the other, but like both of those those accounts or both of those stories are are true reflections of of Israel at that time. And there wasn't really a question in there, just that I was just I was just thinking about that and like, you know, it is interesting, isn't it? And they're both they're both like pro monarchy stories, but in in very different ways. You know, the judges are saying, here's the chaos and the bloodshed that results because there was no king in Israel, you know, and then Ruth is is more just, here's how simple, you know, acts of faith and gentleness mm-hmm. led to, you know, the Davidic family uh, coming to an existence. It was just, it yeah. was just something I was thinking about. So I think there's some comfort in there for us for today. Um, I know a lot of people feel like we're in tumultuous times, and I think we are. But Judges it has a big scope, right? Mm-hmm. It's a big picture of what's going on in Israel in its military battles. And, of course, individual lives are swept up in that and affected. But it is the, the big picture of what's happening. Ruth is a, a zoning in on a very small place where one with one family in particular. And I think one of the messages there of comfort is that even when things are awful... Like these moments of goodness are still around. Yahweh mm-hmm. is still at work redeeming and, and working. And um, I didn't have that thought until you brought up the question just now. But I, I think that perhaps that's something we should take from it is even when in the big picture sense, all of it's bad, <laughs> Yahweh is still working and working right. in huge ways. Because through through Boaz and Ruth, we get, we get David. Mm-hmm. From David, we get Jesus. Our next week's readings will be through the first 21 chapters of 1 Samuel, and then also there are two psalms. We'll be looking at Psalm 59 and 34. The events of 1 and 2 Samuel are essentially about the rise of the kingdom of Israel. The events in the books of Samuel probably happen around 1100 BC to about 950 BC. And this is one of those times where we can really see the hand of God at work through history. Because at that time and in that region, something was happening which allowed for the rise of a kingdom like David's. Now, this isn't really a summary of what's going on specifically in the Bible texts, but it gives some needed context, I think, to your reading. You see, up to this point in the late Bronze Age, there was an ongoing struggle for power between strong and powerful groups that wanted control of Palestine. And then around 1200 BC, an event happened that I think Pastor Ben mentioned a few weeks ago. A group of people arrived from the Aegean region, which is in western Turkey today, and one part of that group eventually became known as the Philistines. But they totally unsettled the power balance in the area, and the major powers that held a lot of sway before were now sort of kept in check. 
And this allowed God's people to flourish and grow and forge a kingdom. We see Yahweh's hand at work, even through these massive events on a global scale. So our story in 1 Samuel begins with Samuel's birth and the infertility struggles of his mother, Hannah, and her promise to dedicate her first child to Yahweh. She promises that her son, Samuel, will be a lifelong Nazarite, which is what Samson was supposed to be. And I imagine if we have just read Judges, as I know we have, people reading the book of Samuel would have Samson in mind with hopes that this would go better than it did last time. And it does. And then we learn about Samuel as he gradually grows into the role of prophet and leader under the tutelage of Eli, whose sons are terrible and unfit. (laughs) Terrible sons is actually kind of a theme through Samuel. It's interesting. Um, And when Eli's house falls, Samuel begins to lead Israel as the judges did. Now the stage is set with Israel in continual military strife and idolatry. The ark is even captured by the Philistines and goes on its own adventure before being returned (laughs) to Israel. But in part, because Samuel's sons are like Eli's sons, not fit to lead, the Israelites ask for a king. Now, if you've been paying close attention as we've read, that should send up some red flags for you. The book of Deuteronomy is pretty negative about the idea of a human king because Yahweh is supposed to be king to his people. But that's what the Israelites ask for, and so that's what Yahweh gives them. And they are given Saul. Ah, Saul. (laughs) The man who seems to be an obvious choice because he's a head taller than everyone else. From a worldly perspective, he makes sense. And he begins so humbly, but then quickly ends up over his head and making mistake after mistake. Be kind to Saul as you read. There's no doubt that he genuinely makes mistakes and rebels against Yahweh. But you don't get the impression, at least through most of his reign, that that's what he's trying to do. He's a human king, chosen for a standard which reflects human values, and there was never any chance that that was going to go well. And it doesn't. Finally, Yahweh rejects Saul as king because of his disobedience, and he chooses a king not based on worldly values, but on his heart. And we get to meet young David, who plays the harp, who protects his sheep from lions, who stands bravely against Goliath, and who becomes a soldier of unmatched ability. In that story of David and Goliath, a story you no doubt know very well, I want you to notice just the juxtaposition between David and Saul that's happening. I think we have that story to illustrate how the two are different. Then we go on to hear about Saul's jealousy of David and David's friendship with Jonathan, Saul's son, and his exploits as he avoids capture by Saul, who now cannot fathom giving up his kingship. We also have two psalms in our reading this week. Both, I think, either written by David or written later and attached to these stories of David, as though they would go along with the teaching of of what happened in David's life. I'm fine with either one. Psalm 59 is a prayer for deliverance that harkens back to when Saul tries to kill David in 1 Samuel 19. And Psalm 34, which is a favorite of mine, uh, comes from 1 Samuel 21, when David is driven away by Achish. The readings this week in in Samuel are fascinating and interesting, and I think you'll find them edifying. Samuel is not as bloody a book as Judges by any means, but there is still a lot of battle in it. At the same time, what we longed for in Judges, we find in Samuel in the form of David and, and Samuel, are heroic leaders who are faithful to Yahweh and are doing what they've been asked to do. We have a strong sense that something that has been going wrong may be about to go right 
and that is, I think, supposed to instill in us a feeling of hope. So Samuel, the book of Samuel opens with this uh, scene or this story about Hannah and Elkanah mm-hmm. and Penina. Uh, and it's similar to oh, yeah. stories we've seen so far, of just kind of this pattern of barrenness and... Two wives, one barren, one not. Right. And so I just wanted, if you, and you don't have to, but if you could comment on just kind of the comparison between Hannah's kind of situation or like how do we see Hannah's story kind of carry that that theme yeah. along or develop it or riff on it in a new way. So I don't think that we can avoid seeing the story of Isaac and the story of Jacob here. Um, both of those, I mean, patriarchs coming from mothers who were barren. Mm-hmm. Um, even the story of Joseph, you know, t- takes on those those uh, things. And so we're Samuel's being connected back beyond the judges to these early leaders in the faith. And I think that one of the things that Yahweh is doing there in the orchestrating of the story in this way, either as it happened or for us to read or both, is is assuring us that there's some reason to be hopeful with Samuel. Mm. Um, something that has been desperately needed is a, a reliable leader for Israel. Now, there were good judges, right? But um, this is a, a, a vacuum that needs to be filled. And after reading the book of Judges, you are desperate for some hope. Mm-hmm. And I think we're supposed to see it's almost a reset of Samson because Samson is at the tail end of Judges. And we get a very similar beginning with the Nazarite vow with Samuel. And mm-hmm. I really do. I think that we're supposed to read that um, a, a thread throughout the Bible of faithfulness and goodness and be given hope about what Samuel's going to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's pretty well fulfilled. Well, and, <clears throat> and you said something there that I think is worth pointing out that Samuel, I mean, he is a judge, like he fulfills mm-hmm. the role of the judge. But it seems like in a much more um, national sense yes. than the other judges. He's like a big he's, judge. He's a national leader. Uh, I mean, you know, they didn't necessarily have the same sense of like a nation state, but like all of the tribes of Israel are kind of looking to Samuel for leadership and guidance. And that is a big change. Yes, it is. I think the only is maybe Deborah and Barak and, and Jephthah in a more limited way, just in terms of military leadership. Mm-hmm. But And Samuel does some of that. But I mean, just for for uh judging you know for for what what's the word judicial leadership yes. i guess and and because uh, there's ways in which samuel kind of functions as a pre-king mm-hmm. you know i mean he's not the king he's the he, morphing of the two yeah right he's kind of a bridge between the the office of the judge uh the chieftain and what saul and, and david would would become what's interesting about that is he also fulfills the role of prophet mm-hmm. and that is not what the king is supposed to be yeah, and so Samuel true. has those, like all three elements, and then one gets plucked out mm-hmm. as they move forward. And I think very importantly, yeah. um, and that gets Saul into trouble because he mm-hmm. wants he wants reliable well, profiting. That's true, and and you reference this as well. I mean, Paul Saul's disobedience is is also kind of taking on a, a priestly function that that uh, the king was not directly, you know, supposed to have, and we kind of see that throughout the stories of the kings as well, not just mm-hmm. with Saul, that there's sort of a infringing upon these other uh, yeah. institutions. <laughs> I'm having this thought in, in real time. 
But Samuel really is, in many ways, like a Moses, a stand-in for Yahweh. Mm-hmm. I mean, he fulfills all the functions. He delivers yeah. them militarily. Yeah. He does the priest. He's the prophet. He's, he interprets the law. I mean, yeah. all of it. And the king Conducts is sacrifices. not supposed to be a stand-in for Yahweh. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that's, I think, very a very... Much Im- not. Yeah. Right. That's a very important <laughs> distinction. And I, I think that some of that, it bothers Saul. He wants mm-hmm. to be able to fulfill all those functions. He sees yeah. himself as Yahweh's well, stand-in. And I think, and this is exactly what Samuel tells the people, that Saul sees, like he looks at these other nations, and that's how their kings did operate. That in other kingdoms, I mean, they had their own priests and prophets and things, but like the king was the epitome of all of those functions. And I think for us, eventually, we see all that culminating in Jesus, who can handle all of that responsibility (laughs) and authority. You know, but in the in the Israelite, you know, in this in this stage, it's like they nobody Moses did it and Samuel did it, you know, uh, and like you said, the theme of of unworthy sons, Samuel's sons are both wicked, you know, and they can't carry on the mantle but i've always imagined since i was a lad <laughs> reading samuel like i've always imagined him as sort of like a biblical gandalf like the wizard from lord of the so rings i really get a lord of the rings vibe from the book of because he's samuel, literally right? an old man who like roams around the, <laughs> the land haranguing people uh-huh. choosing and and calling along the future king right calling along the future chastising king, the one that needs to give up power you know, and yeah. rescuing the treasure from the dark lord of the philistines i wonder like, if I mean, there's, there's any, if tolkien a, took anything like, from huh, samuel yeah i mean there's there is definitely some gandalf vibes there really is. Samuel. <laughs> does he say you shall not pass at any point because that'd be amazing that in the be. hebrew in the hebrew in the hebrew yeah 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 <laughs> Uh, well, going back to Hannah, you know, one of the things I was thinking about, too, is just between her and the matriarchs, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think that, oh, is it, I know one of them prays Rachel, but just Hannah prays a lot. Like mm-hmm. we have a whole, you know, poetic prayer recorded from her. And um, and I just thought that was an interesting development you know, of this, that for the, the ancient, ancient matriarchs, you know, Sarah and, well, Sarah laughs at Yahweh, you know, and, and uh, Rachel and Rebecca, I think maybe, you know, offer very short prayers. I mean, at least that's what's represented in the text, whereas Hannah gives a much longer psalm, mm-hmm. really. Um, that it's beautiful. It is beautiful. And, and I think in some ways it, it kind of creates a, a new motif you know, of the praying woman in scripture that I think we see like with Mary and the Magnificat. Yeah. Why did Eli think that Hannah was drunk? Oh, that's a great, great question. So Hannah's in the temple or the, the precursor to the temple and at Shiloh, the building at Shiloh where they, they do worship. And normally what would have happened is she would have paid the priest for a blessing. Um, but she's poor. She's not paying the priest for a blessing. So she's doing it internally. But that was not actually a common thing in that place. You went there for Eli's blessing to pay him for it. But he's moved. Um, So, well, at first he thinks that she's just doing her own thing and he thinks that she's drunk. And um, she says, no, I'm not drunk. I'm sad, basically. (laughs) And he's moved by her faith and her, her hope. And so he gives her a blessing anyway as a gift. Um, We don't read that the way that an original reader Mm -hmm. would have read that. She was supposed to pay for that, and and she didn't. Um, 
And that's significant. Uh, that's Eli's goodness. I mean, Eli is a is a mixed figure, mm-hmm. right? He seems good in almost every way except for being a terrible father, right. which is also an uncomfortable thread throughout. I mean, it goes mm-hmm. with bad sons, but the yeah. throughout the this time in history. Um, but uh, uh, he's he's kind to this 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 woman that is barren, mm-hmm. and I think that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. What would have been Samuel's role in the tabernacle? Because he wasn't, they weren't Levites, they were Ephraimites. Mm -hmm. And so, like, what would he have been doing? Isn't that so interesting? I don't know. Uh, I mean, we have, we know that people could be given over to uh, dedication to the Lord. Yeah. And that it's not just Levites that are doing things. Right. But I don't think that at this point Samuel would have been. I mean, it's kind of a weirdly Cinderella-esque story. Mm. I mean, he's he's the the one without the the lineage or the kind of parenting. You know, he doesn't have the right name. He's not able to do a lot of the things that the, the Eli's sons are. And Eli's sons are terrible. Right. And yet, as he grows up, he's the one whose heart actually belongs to Yahweh and that Yahweh eventually speaks to. It even literally says Yahweh didn't do that very often then. Yeah. And and then he starts, I mean, it becomes common in, in Samuel's life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know that his role became what we talked about earlier. But in this case, I imagine he was just a helper. And given what we know of Eli's sons, I imagine he was not treated very well by them. It's also interesting that it just makes me think with Samuel and kings, I mean, priests are around. But like until Solomon built the temple, I just feel like they're kind of much more in the background. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's very much like kind of the priesthood is shifted to the back burner and kind of the the royal yeah. and prophetic well, lines are setting kind up of and tearing forward. down of the tabernacle for so long. But now it's in one spot. Mm-hmm. So what are they supposed to be doing? I, I don't know the an- I'm sure there is an answer to that. I don't know what it is. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, yeah, it's just, and, and that could also just be a reflection of, you know, and it, yeah, well, <laughs> of the kind of the spirit of the time of like, they weren't so interested anymore in the tabernacle itself, you know, I mean, I guess, well, my next question was going to be about the ark, you know, but, but were they, what was the, what was the tabernacle worship like? Like how far had they deviated from the law of Moses? Like we don't yeah. know. You know, I mean, there's little hints and things sprinkled throughout. I mean, they sacrifice in other places. Mm-hmm. Samuel does, mm-hmm. you know, which is like, huh. Now, to be fair, Deuteronomy says, once I have chosen a place, you know, you're not supposed to sacrifice outside of that place. And Samuel uh, would be the one who could make the exception. Right, right, right. But it is just like, it's an interesting sort of a, I don't know what to put it exactly. I guess sort of a transition period, yeah. you know, that they're not in the wilderness anymore. They're settled but they're not all the way settled. Like, I guess that's the the part of what's happening in, in Samuel, taking First and Second Samuel as a single book, because, I mean, that's what it is originally, uh, that you can also kind of see this, this drive towards Yahweh really kind of settling finally in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Really, that even carries forward into, into kings with Solomon building the temple and um, that, you know, the, the, the people are in the land, but they're still, you know, they're still not fully settled. <laughs> so you mentioned like how far have they deviated? So we have this story about Eli's sons and mm-hmm. what they did with offerings, right? The food that they got. Um, and we have kind of a description of what was normally supposed to happen and then what Eli's sons did. But the thing about what was supposed to happen is that's not what's said in Leviticus. It's it's different. 
Um, it's already been changed to favor the priests getting a little bit choicier of morsels and Yahweh being robbed of the choiciest parts of the sacrifice. Um, and so it's listed as here's what was supposed to happen, but they're so terrible they did differently. Well, even the original was disobedience. It was it was a drifting from what was supposed to be. If you're interested in the, the originals, it was in Leviticus 7, 30 through 34. Hmm. And basically, they're supposed to get the breast, right? That's mm-hmm. supposed to be the, the... But it's after it's boiled, so they're not getting the fat. The fat was the choiciest part of that for them. And so what they were doing is they were supposed to just put their fork in, and then whatever came up is what they received. Well, that's not what Leviticus says to do. Um, and then the Eli sons, they, they pretty much said, no, we're going to get what we want, when we want, how we want. Um, which is, I mean, the gall. Like, I don't think you can believe Yahweh cares at all if you're doing that in his temple. Like, I just, I don't know how you get there. Or since we're priests, if we're doing it, then it's okay. Must be right. Yeah. Well, that's kind of how Samuel eventually was, but that is was okay because he was right. They are not good. And so mm-hmm. they, they don't have that. Uh... Mm-hmm. When your heart actually fully belongs to Yahweh, the things that you do, and when you're wise and you know his will, the things that you do will Flow be. from yeah. that. Yeah. And... Why did they carry the ark into a battlefield <laughs> in chapter four? So they shouldn't have, and that's why it went badly. But I think that the Ark had come to feel like a, um, a talisman mm-hmm. and a, a way of invoking action from Yahweh, right? This is where he is. We have all these stories of things right. happening, you know, and, and being connected to the Ark. When we go and worship Yahweh, his like Ark is there, right? Yeah. And, the, and so we want, we want military success. The problem is they, they were not told to do that. Mm-hmm. And so they go and do it. And Yahweh does not grant them success. The Philistines steal the Ark. That is, uh, I think that we don't, because the Ark, it doesn't mean to us what it meant to them. I don't think we get the shock that a reader would get from that. I mean, they would know the story, of course, but right. oh man. I mean, I think after reading the Torah and coming, because this would, this would be another kind of a, not a point, but another, like a game point, but like another point in favor of like, read the Torah. Because like for me, you read all this, you read how they built it. Yeah. It's exquisite just as an object, you know, it's it's uh, worth and it's the, the, the time they sunk into it. But then also truly understanding like what they and what God, like what it was meant to be, you know, mm-hmm. as a, his his footstool of his throne or the place of his presence and kind of this this simulated Eden that was what the tabernacle was. But like it's, it's truly like the physical manifestation of the covenant really like i mean it's the heart of their life with god and for the philistines one i guess for them to presume you know that they can just take it and carry it haul it out into a battlefield you know uncovered it doesn't specify that they wrapped it up or anything like they were the supposed israelites. to you said the philistines the israelites Sorry, yes that the yeah. israelites you know uh and so just the disrespect that they showed to it you know i think is very telling i mean it's a, it is a weird story because like it's on the one hand it's disrespectful and disobedient, but then on the other it's like they're acknowledging they're acknowledging God's power and His faithfulness in the past, but they're doing it badly. 
Yeah. Well, it's it's God is a vending machine. Which, well, that's true, and and that's worth probably sitting and thinking about for ourselves for a while. It's just uh-huh. like, hmm, yeah. If you had <laughs> you the know. ark, would you not want to take it places all the time? <laughs> well. I mean, if you had the Holy Spirit, would you not want to invoke his name improperly Mm -hmm. for your own opinions and actions? No one would ever do that. (laughs) Uh, And then, yeah, anyway, so I just I just wanted to point that out that that uh, why did they do that and and why did it uh, go badly for them? Well, and then something that's interesting there is the Philistines who are terrified of the ark, then take it. Uh Right. Yeah. And what we get is a little bit of hearkening back to the Exodus, because the Ten Plagues yeah, is yeah, kind of what that's happens. That's true. Yeah. Dagon, who yep. is the Philistine deity, he's one of the oldest deities we have any record of outside of the Bible. Um, Sargon of Akkad in like the mid, uh, like 2500 BC is talking about Dagon. He's been worshipped for a long, long time. time. He's the he's considered the father of Baal. Like I mean, this is a an important pagan deity probably in my opinion a powerful spiritual being fallen angel and um he's in the perspective of the time was when an army was beaten their god was beaten the gods were fighting right that is the background of the david and goliath story Uh later on Uh and and this story i think links to that story in a variety of ways but anyways the so they take the ark to the temple thinking that the Dagon has defeated Yahweh. Right. And so there's no danger in putting the ark right. in front of Dagon. And who, buddy? And yeah. you wonder what that must have done to the mindset of an ancient Philistine. They've beaten this people. They've taken their God. <laughs> they put it in their own temple and things start going badly. So they bounce it around from city to city uh-huh. and it goes badly in every single place they take it. You just wonder if any of them were like, Maybe we're on the wrong side. <laughs> maybe, maybe we, maybe we should sign up. Are we the baddies? Because <laughs> yeah. they didn't see them. I mean, the Philistines had had a rough history. They'd been chased right. out of their home. They, right, right. For them, I mean, ironically, and again, this is something we miss because our disconnection from the history. The Philistines probably saw themselves similarly to how the Israelites saw themselves mm-hmm. leaving Egypt, going to right. the Promised right. Land. The Philistines had the same desire. They got, they left a place, and they they came and they settled this and one. And a highly cultured, sophisticated people. They were more advanced than the Israelites. They yeah. were the civilized ones, and the the people around were the barbarians. Right. This was a group of people who <laughs> the Israelites were the troublesome hill folk. <laughs> they were. They really were. We don't read it that way because of our perspective. But oh right. man, <clears throat> yeah. Um, and so well, so so just even all that to say, it's like all right, so. You know, they took the troublesome hill folks' little golden box, uh-huh. you know, and brought it to their big Dagon temple, thinking we won. This is part of Dagon's treasury now, you know. And then the the statue, the idol of Dagon, uh, breaks apart, yeah, falls, falls over, and, and breaks loses apart. head and arms. Yeah, yeah, and they go, "Oh no, yeah. <laughs> that's not yeah. supposed to happen." Which I mean, as we're talking, it's like that's a that's a. Uh, Good. It's just another, you know, preview of the gospel, right? That Jesus was captured and taken by the powers of death, and they thought they'd got him, and lo and behold, it was actually their defeat in in bringing him into their and, temple. Well, can you imagine the the if Dagon is a fallen angel, right? That's being worshipped as a deity or something like that. Yeah. Can you imagine its thrill? 
mm-hmm. at the ark being brought in before it, the the victory it thinks it's won over Yahweh, right. and then the utter humiliation that mm-hmm. follows. Yeah. Uh, so jumping forward a bit, the people ask for a king. Why? Why do they want a king? Why do they feel like they need a king? Yeah. So we've already talked about terrible sons. Yes. Right. And um, we even have a little bit of that with the Moses story because Moses' grandson showed up in Judges. If you missed it, we can talk about it. Ask us about it. I don't think we talked about it on the podcast. No, we didn't. Um, but uh, uh, And he was bad. And he was bad, yeah. Yeah, Moses' grandson. <laughs> he may be the worst character in Judges, yeah. Um, but um, the... The sons of Eli are terrible, you know, and Samuel kind of comes up in that environment. But then we find out the sons of Samuel are terrible, too. And Samuel's old. And he's the first national leader Israel's had. And they look around and they see all these other nations with kings. And one of the things a king does is it gives a focus of national identity and human Mm -hmm. form. Um, Samuel, he moved around. He wasn't centrally located. Um, And also, he often didn't do the things in the way the people might have wanted them done. He was pretty committed to Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And kings are supposed to be pretty committed to their people. And I think it was just very easy for them to want that. I mean, if you can imagine the United States not having a government officially and just we're all supposed to figure it out and, you know, individual leaders will rise. I mean, Jephthah was a was a bandit warlord right. that became the, the one of the leaders in Israel. These are not. And I mean, you know, the story of Samson. I mm-hmm. imagine they were terrified of what's going to happen when Samuel dies. Um, his sons look like worse than Samson. And so mm-hmm. they wanted a king. And with a king comes a hereditary kingship. Mm-hmm. There's some comfort in that, I think. And they wanted to be like other peoples. Well, and I think I think that, yes, to all of that and as well, just this idea of like, all right, so again, think about who all is around them. You have Egypt, which is still kind of the big, mm-hmm. it's the superpower at this point. The Philistines. They, they actually repulsed the Philistines, yeah. Right. You know, you have the the related, the family peoples, you know, uh, east of the river, Edom as Esau's people, Moab as Lot's people. And all of those people have kings or chieftains, which means that, you know, Egypt, Egypt does not have to wait for some charismatic bandit to win a bunch of support to do anything. In a day, Pharaoh can say, go attack this place, and they will. You know, so I think just from a national security perspective, <laughs> sure, from they, a worldly they would never have thought, yeah. you know, but just, but that's really the substance of what I think part of that concern is. Look, we are a loose confederation of related families with no standing army, no ability to, you know, to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not effectively, efficiently kind of muster a military response to an invasion or, or whatever else. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we had a king, if we had a central authority, then then that would happen. And so Samuel gives kind of this long, descriptive, poetic, like, here's what a king will do for you that is not positive. Well, and it repeats a lot of what was said in Deuteronomy. It does, yeah. And we see in a lot of ways the kings then subsequently you know, do exactly what Samuel well, says they're going to do. Well, Saul gets a few comments specifically plucking things from <clears throat> yeah, Samuel's yeah. speech in Deuteronomy. Yeah. But I, I want you to speak into maybe a little bit, like the there just seems to be a bit of a tension here within the Bible itself between, like, are kings, were the kings a good idea or a bad idea? 
Because, like, if you just read this passage from Samuel, they would be a bad idea. Mm-hmm. But you read the book of Judges, you know, and it says, especially towards the end, as it gets more and more chaotic and destructive, you know, there was no king in Israel and every man did as he saw fit. You know, or then, and there are laws in Deuteronomy 17 that, that dictate what kind of the role of what an Israelite king was going to be. Yeah. So, like, how do we... And and not like how do we sort through the contradiction, but just if you could just kind of speak to there definitely seems to be a a tension, I guess. I don't know what what else to what other word to call it about monarchy, you know, within the the Hebrew way of thought. So I think in Judges in particular, there's a couple of things going on. Um, There was supposed to be a king in Israel and that king was supposed to be Yahweh. Mm. And there was no king in Israel has a double meaning, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, there was, they were not following Yahweh as king and there was not yet a human king. Eventually the kingship becomes a good thing, but it becomes a good thing because Yahweh takes hold of it. So Yahweh chooses Saul. Um, it's interesting reading commentators. I might, I might cut this, but it's interesting reading commentators and how, how much they doubt Samuel is actually hearing from Yahweh even evangelical commentators, hmm. because he seems to be pretty preoccupied with size. Even Eliab, David's oldest brother, like when he sees him, he's like, "Oh yeah, because he's big. Because he's the big. He one. must be. He must be the. He must be the one." Um, and so they think that maybe Samuel's just a really bad listener to Yahweh. Hmm. And I, I think that that's imported. I think that I think that Saul is chosen by Yahweh to show the people how terrible an idea this is. But then also it provides a juxtaposition for David because David doesn't make any sense whatsoever from a human perspective. I mean, he's, he's probably about 12 years old mm-hmm. in the story where he's found and anointed to be king. There is no human being that would ever have chosen David over Saul. They don't, it doesn't make any sense. He's a boy, a shepherd. He's a hick. <laughs> I mean, he, he has no military training, no upbringing that would indicate that he is special. And he's the youngest. So we get we get a little bit of the Jacob story, you know, the Yahweh mm-hmm. flipping thing. Right. Whereas Saul is the biggest and the tallest. Right. Not only is David itty bitty, he's the youngest. And I think it's interesting that he's the youngest of eight. Mm-hmm. So there's like seven mm-hmm. and then there's like an extra. Right. And the extra is the runt. Right. And the runt is the one that that Yahweh chooses the one that you could never say, well, because of the scope of his prowess on his own, but also in his heart is this, I don't want to be the one to get credit. So I think that we're supposed to see the monarchy becoming a good thing because Yahweh grabs hold of it and Mm. changes it. It's no longer about the human values. He accepts that there is a monarchy and chooses the king wisely. Now it goes bad after, Mm -hmm. right? But David is a, a glowing spot of what mm-hmm. can happen when, when Yahweh and David's name means beloved. Mm-hmm. I think that's worth always yeah. worth always worth pointing out what the names mean when we think to do it. Oh, there's some there's some good ones. Samuel <laughs> means God has heard. Yeah, and uh, I think there's Hannah means favor and grace. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Ichabod means where's the glory. Yeah, there's all kinds of good names in, in First Samuel. Yeah, uh, and it's interesting. You see, I mean, Samuel introduces well. The concept of heart or the heart, you mm-hmm. know, has obviously been talked about throughout. And, you know, I was just listening to a podcast where they pointed out that, you know, ancient Hebrew has no word for brain. Uh, that, that ancient people in this day, and age, like they didn't, 
there was no way for them to really know what the brain was for. They often <laughs> discarded it because they didn't think it was important. Yeah. Right. When the Egyptians made mummies, they scrambled your brains yeah. with a hook and yanked them out because they didn't think they were important to preserve. <laughs> <laughs> because it's silent and dark. Like you can't, it doesn't move like without uh, instruments that measure electrical signals. There is no way to know what, what what's going on with the brain. Whereas your heart, you can literally feel it. You know, it responds to fear and excitement and, and everything else. And so um, it's also the, obviously, the kind of the Grand Central Station for your blood, which is the life. You know, so I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense that they considered, that they use the word heart to mm-hmm. mean, like, you, your mind, your thinking, the center of your being, also your feelings and your emotions. But, like, where was we have language that separates those things out. You know, I know it in my brain, but I don't feel it in my heart. They didn't have a distinction, you know. I mean, they knew the distinction between thoughts and feelings, but just that it was all the heart for them. And, you know, so when you think about, in these stories, there seems to be a theme that's introduced in Samuel of just Yahweh affecting the heart. I mean, he did it with Pharaoh, you know, that he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we see, mm-hmm. uh, I guess I was just reading in Deuteronomy that it talks about him hardening Sihon's heart. So, I mean, there, there's a little bit of that. But mostly it seems like for the negative, you know, in terms of hardening hearts or whatever else, whereas here in Samuel, he's, it's like he kind of tweaks Saul's heart and David's heart. And, you know, that just this yeah. idea of that, that Yahweh can do that, you know, that he can, he can guide people's hearts, which certainly includes guiding your feelings. But again, just with the ancient Hebrew con- concept of what heart is or was really guiding their whole, you know, their whole being, um, not just guiding their feelings and mm-hmm. So we see the rejection of Saul beginning because of his disobedience or his presumption of, of kind of taking on this priestly role. And uh, in chapter 14, he wants to continue to attack the Philistines. And so it says in verse, I think, 36, uh, And they said, Whatever is good in your eyes, do. And the priest said, Let us approach God yonder. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them in the hand of Israel? And he did not answer him on that day. So why didn't Yahweh answer? And how did they know? Like what's happening there in terms of like, is it that they're hearing a voice? Is it like what, how did they know that they didn't get an answer? Well, interestingly, 1 Samuel does reintroduce the Urim and Thummim. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a, a role of the priest, not just to interpret the law, but to be a seer, to interpret Yahweh's will. Um, and so the idea is that Saul wants to have one of those, an interpreter of Yahweh's will with him all the time. Samuel is not the one that goes with Saul all the time. I mean, there's tension there. Um, even when things are good, I, I just, the way I read Saul is he wouldn't have wanted Samuel around. Samuel's not impressed with Saul's kingship. Right. Um, and so he's not going to say things Saul wants him to say. Yeah. And Saul end up, ends up, in fact, picking um, a priest at one point who is a um, descendant of Eli, the house that was discarded um, almost rebelliously mm. choosing. But I think what's happening is the priests are trying to to discern the will of Yahweh, and Yahweh is communicating with them somehow. I don't think that's because that's what that was supposed to be happening. I think, like the king, they're asking for it, and sometimes he says okay, um, but he's quiet because he doesn't want he doesn't like the direction that Saul's heart is turning. I think, and we see that play out very quickly from here. 
um, he makes this big proclamation that no one is to eat until mm-hmm. we have we have finished this battle, which is utterly absurd. Um, you don't tell a bunch of soldiers in the thick of conflict not to eat. Um, and then it's it, there's this whole debacle over whether or not Jonathan has to be put to death mm-hmm. because Jonathan not knowing about it. And we get the Jephthah story just mm-hmm. kind of coming back. And while it's good that Jonathan isn't put to death, I think we're supposed to see Saul in the same way we see Jephthah, just this utterly mm-hmm. foolish um, proclamation. And I think when you're when you're acting a fool, Yahweh's not going to give you the answer, the input that you want. I think that's what Saul's doing, is he's acting a fool. So in chapter 15, Saul's rejection is sort of made public, or Sam kind of announces it. Yeah. So in verse, uh, I think it's at the end of verse 10, Yahweh says to Samuel, I repent that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from me, and my words he has not followed. But then later, when Samuel is telling Saul this, let's see here. He says, And Samuel said to him, starting in verse 28, The Lord has torn away the kingship of Israel from you this day and given it to your fellow man who is better than you. And what's more, Israel's eternal does not deceive and does not repent, for he is no human to repent. So does Yahweh repent or not? <laughs> I, you and I have talked about this before and disagreed. <laughs> so here we go. Um, you, uh, uh, you. I don't know why I started that with the sense that way. One of the things that I think is tense as we read the scriptures is that we often have an anthropomorphized Yahweh interacting with his people. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is Yahweh sometimes acts a lot like a person, even at times when it doesn't make sense for Yahweh to have this quality of personhood. Um, Does Yahweh repent? I do not think so. Um, I think that Yahweh knew exactly how things were going to go with Saul. One of the things that Yahweh does do is he, in my opinion, he adopts a persona of a dynamic changing one, um, for each of us in our relationship with him. And the occasionally in the story of Israel, um, what that's required of him or what he's chosen to do is to adopt that persona in a way that communicates something very important to, to God's people. One of the most famous ones comes from Exodus when he repents of, of having you know rescued Israel. And then he's going to make a new people through through Moses. And Moses stands up and says, no, 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 no. My opinion about that is that Yahweh is doing that for Moses and for later readers to understand the importance of obedience and Moses's role um, in his own faithfulness to be reaffirmed. Here, what I think is happening is we're seeing that Yahweh accommodated them in their desire for a king and even accommodated them in their in the choice of a king. He chose Saul. They didn't, but that's exactly who they wanted, was a big man to just kind of take charge. And what he's saying was, this was a bad idea. We did it because you wanted it, but we're not, this is where it ends. We're not doing this anymore. Um, So do I think that Yahweh repented? No. I think Yahweh switched directions, but he'd gone this direction for the sake of humoring the Israelites to teach them something, I think. I don't know. Sam, First Samuel 15, I think, is a bit of a legitimate puzzle. And I mean, it's right there. They're 10 verses away from each other. Ancient people knew that it was there. So it's not like a big like, oh, we got him. You know, I mean, I think it is. 
I think of where I'm at, what I would say is it is true that Yahweh doesn't repent, meaning change his mind or or say, oh, that was a bad course of action. We should try something else, as Samuel says later on in the chapter. And it's true that he regretted making Saul king. How those two things come together, I, I don't know. I don't know. What do you mean by regret? Like, I wish he, I think he, that within the narrative, the idea is that Yahweh wishes that Saul had not been king. Oh, sure. I, I don't think that contradicts at all. Oh, well, great. Because it's <laughs> Yahweh didn't choose him because he thought he was the best. No, that's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. It's a reflection of how far his people are from him right. that Saul was chosen right. and accepted. Last thing that I wanted to touch on or ask Ooh. about. Uh, There's is, so much more. <laughs> I know. Is David and Jonathan's friendship. Uh, yeah. A famous friendship, a, a strong friendship, but also the language that First and Second Samuel use for David and Jonathan's friendship, I think will strike a modern Western reader as odd. What do you mean by odd? <laughs> well, so chapter 18, verse 1, and it happened as he finished speaking, this is David, uh, as David's finished speaking with Saul, that Jonathan's very self became bound up with David's, and Jonathan loved him as himself. I mean, that's marriage language. It is, yeah. So, and we read that, and I think our minds jump to, you know, different modern gay? issues and, yeah, things like that. I'm just like, huh, what's... uh. What's going on? So I just I thought we could we could park here for a minute and talk about biblical friendship. Yeah. And how sad and sorry and thin our modern view of, of male friendship is. <laughs> well, and that's I mean, what you just did is you you portrayed the issue, right? When yeah. we read this. Um I can't say for certain that an ancient reader would not have read like there wasn't the same kind of male bravado, machismo that would require or would cause a man to read this and go, oh, I'm not that close with anyone mm-hmm. at that time. That may have been a common a common thing then as it is now. I'm not, I don't think that's the case because in part, it doesn't read like something that's supposed to shock us. Right. Um, it's never referred to negatively. Right. It's never brought up. It's right. It's there and it's unquestioned. And I think that usually means that it wasn't, that it was totally understood within the rubric of the ancient culture. Mm -hmm. We have a weird thing about men and emotions today. Um, One of the, one of the things that has crept into our society is the idea that, that women are the ones who are supposed to be emotional Mm -hmm. and men are supposed to be the stoic ones. Um, That, that Mm -hmm. there's something about manhood. The strong, silent type. Yeah. The, the man is the one who has fewer feelings. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that, um, but that that are not necessarily blameworthy. But I think there are some very blameworthy ones that go there too. One of the things here is that I think that, sadly, somewhere along the line, we started to think of emotions sometimes as weakness, and that just doesn't fit the Bible at all. Like it doesn't fit the Bible at all. Jesus is an emotional guy. Mm-hmm. Jesus is a crier. I mean. Mm-hmm. Our Lord and Savior was a bit of a crier. Right. Um, the David is a very emotional guy, and he's supposed to be, I think, until until we get Jesus, maybe the picture of biblical manhood. Um, 
I think that this was a culture that did not feel weird about men having emotions in the way that we feel weird about men having emotions. One of the downsides about us feeling weird about men having emotions is that it thins out what male friendship can be. Um, it, it lessens it significantly. And I don't think they de dealt with that issue at the time, or at least not in the way we do now. Um, and so I think that what we have here is a picture of what a healthy friendship can be. And friendship is, I think, something we undervalue altogether. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. What if this? What if we just secretly slowly morph this into a like old timey radio drama? Ooh. <laughs> this week on Clayton and Ben the Bullet. <clears throat> ah. Yeah. Kapow! Anyway. <laughs> Where we answer your Bible questions and fight the Nazis. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> Can we add a fight the Nazis section to our to our podcast? I mean, honestly, we probably should. Get, oh, yeah. <laughs>